Awesome. Welcome. And thank you, everyone who shared. And also thank you to Vaughn and Jackie, who just blew us away the last few weeks. I mean, I don't know why you guys want to listen to me when you've got such amazing preachers. Um, it's just awesome. And, and thinking of uh, sharing faith, maybe with someone who doesn't believe as we do. I, I heard of a skeptic this week, um, and, uh, and he wrote the following. He said, I went to a faith healing session. So this brings in Sean's story. I went to a faith healing session last night, but it was absolute rubbish. I mean, it was so bad that the guy in the wheelchair got up and walked out. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's, it's sometimes hard to convince a skeptic, but hopefully we're not skeptics and hopefully we're ready to die in, dive, dive in. Um, <laughs> but we, yeah, we, we, we're not die hard. I was hanging up the washing line and I had some, I'm hanging up the washing on the washing line. This is getting really bad. My tongue got stuck in my eye tooth and I couldn't see what I was saying. Um, <laughs> and I had something happen to me that never happened before. And I think it might be a word of knowledge. Is anyone struggling with tinnitus or tinnitus? The, the ringing in your ear. Just put your hand on your ear. Anyone else? Okay, just, uh, okay, let's, let's do it. The moment I said, Lord, is this a word of knowledge, the, the, the sound went away. So I think he was just giving me so that, that buzz, that, 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 well, it's not a buzz. It's, a, it's a, like a medium to high-pitched ringing that just won't stop. We say, peace be still now in Jesus' name. And I have no idea what causes this condition, but it's completely within the power of Jesus to address it. So in the name of Jesus and by his presence and ministry, we want to say stop to this tinnitus and we want to say release now in Jesus' name. Release now. And we just pray for clear, crystal clear hearing and that silence would be silence, and that rest would be rest, and that the, the thing you hear most would be the voice of Jesus as he coaches you, and so bless you with healing and recovery in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't normally get words of knowledge at the washing line, but I had to just take it. I'd love to know if things improve. A couple of weeks ago, I asked people just because I'd mentioned a healing testimony and, uh, and, and Joey uh, was in church. And I said, just put your hand, you know, where it is and got a strong sense then of people struggling with headaches. that was tension related from the spine and all going down. And uh, I don't know how many of you remember that. And I don't know how many of you got relief from the headache. But Joey phoned me during the week to say she was instantly released from the tension in her spine and her headache has left. And so she's very grateful. And she's a children's church and looking after JP, so she couldn't give that testimony, but she wanted us to share that and to celebrate. So that's really great. Book of James reminds us, uh, and there's so many things in this book, but there's these two integrating themes that are woven uh, into the tapestry. So like this is the two big cross themes and then there's a whole lot of other colors and textures that are put inside the tapestry of James. The first main point is, is this command, be complete, be whole. 
but it's actually an invitation at the same time. And it means to have integrity in every way, that all things fit and hold together. It comes from the Greek word teleos or teleos, which uh, significantly is used seven times in this letter, which gives you a clue how important it is for someone writing from a Jewish context. And it's rooted in the Hebrew idea, an Old Testament idea of tamim, which is about being wholehearted. It's the opposite of being uh, half-hearted or double-minded. And the second idea is that of just doing the law. The law is beautiful and good. It's a perfect law that gives freedom, as we heard last week. Um, And it is by wholeheartedly and single-mindedly loving God and others. And something else to remember, of course, is that he's writing to the 12 tribes, which means what? Who's he writing to? Trick question. 12 tribes. Who is Israel? The Jews were only two and a half tribes. There hadn't been 12 tribes for 721 years. I just, I was picking this up a little bit in some of our conversation. He's not writing to Jewish Christians. He's writing to Gentile and Jewish Christians because in his mind, the 12 is the broken people of God that have been grafted back together again. And so the nine and a half tribes that were carried off when, some, uh, when the northern uh, uh, kingdom of Israel fell, as it were in the New Testament mind being captured back. So for example, so it's both Jew and Gentile. So for Peter, after Pentecost, writes to Gentiles as well, and he also references in Jewish language, but then he calls the Gentiles very clearly people who had lived in the futility of their forefathers' thinking and all kinds of emptiness and vanity that's there. He calls them a chosen people and a holy nation. Now, that was very Jewish language, and he uses that Jewish description to describe Gentiles as well. In John's revelation, the 12 tribes represent people from every tribe, every language, every nation. And so too, of course, Paul, once a fierce Jewish nationalist, now an apostle to the nations and to the Gentiles. So understand that when you're talking about Jews, you're not talking about 12. You're talking about two and a half. When you're talking of the 12, you're talking of the restored Israel, the new Israel. And so you have in Romans, for example, Paul talks about uh, the, 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 the grafting into of the Gentiles into the root system of Israel. So just some things there. But now James is writing with his holistic Hebrew worldview, his Tamim and Teleos thinking, but he's writing into a dualistic Gentile worldview. So the Greeks used to separate everything, body and soul. It was separated and it became body or soul. You had to choose between whether you wanted a, you know, a meaningful life in your body or whether you wanted something distant and immaterial and ideological or spiritual. So the Hebrews thought of actions and beliefs The Greeks thought of actions or beliefs. Hebrews, heart and mind. Greeks, heart or mind. They kept living with this dualism. So now you can understand when he's writing from this holistic Jewish point of view, 
a whole lot of things that he's going to want them to show them from an Hebrew worldview that should help them understand how their faith works. Okay, so let me give you my three points and then we're going to do the reading. The first is James assumes a claim to faith in Jesus. So you'll see that in the reading. I want to just flag it for you. James assumes that these people are saying, I believe in Jesus, that they are saved by faith. The second thing, is, that, and this is his next point, is that when faith lacks sacrificial love and hospitality, very important in, the, in, in this passage, it lacks integrity. When faith lacks sacrificial love, sacrificial hospitality, it lacks integrity. And thirdly, a reduced gospel becomes a false gospel because of what we leave out. So those are the three points. Let's pick up in James 2 verse 14. What's the use, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Question, can such faith save them? I'm going to insert a few little things here and I'll clearly point out when. But basically, James is like almost putting himself now in a court of law or in a dialogue discussion with people. And he's going to give us four examples as evidence. So if we were in a court of law, we'd have exhibit A, exhibit B, etc. And he's going to build his argument as he goes. So exhibit A, verse 15. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. And one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs. Well, what's the use? What good is that? And then he's going to wrap up his little argument with a punchline. In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. And then imagining in the debate, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Or, you know, someone, he might be saying, well, you know, you have the ministry of this, I have the ministry of that. Or you good at golf and I ride a bicycle. It's, it's like you just don't have to hold these things together. You understand the, the idea inside there? It's not like yours is wrong and mine is wrong or right or whatever. It's just, you've got one thing, I've got another. Why do you want to integrate them? James replies, show me your faith without deeds. I'll show you my faith by what I do. I'll show you my faith with my deeds. And then he goes to exhibit B. Your Honor, verse 19, you believe there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and tremble or shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence? Now he's getting back into the argument that faith without deeds is useless. The word is barren or unproductive. Exhibit C. I call to the stand our father Abraham. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. 
the scripture and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend so you see that a person punchline again next punchline is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone exhibit D I'm calling Rahab to the stand in the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? Final concluding argument. As the body without the spirit is dead. It's a very Hebrew thinking. Greeks, well, you could I conceptualize ideas and logos without necessarily flesh. But if you're a Jewish follower of Jesus, you believe that the Logos has become sarkos, that the word of God has become flesh, that the two belong together. There isn't this dualism. As the body without a spirit is dead, it's no use having a body that hasn't, doesn't have a spirit. So faith without deeds is dead. So yeah, we're getting this holistic theme now being woven into the Torah of love for your neighbor. So this is what we're going to see. So the first thing is, point number one, James assumes that these people that he, you know, he's, he's engaging with have a claim to faith in Jesus. Remember, James is defining religion that our God and Father accepts, chapter 1, verse 27. And so he starts chapter 2, verse 1, the very next verse, as... He appeals to them, and we heard it last week when Lloyd read it, as believers in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's who he is, people who are saying they follow Jesus. And, he's, and he says in verse 5, who are rich in faith. Now, he does mention that in particular in regard to the poor, that they've got great faith. But So we need to see that he's not questioning whether faith saves. He's not questioning whether faith in Jesus is important or that works without faith could save us. It's remotely not in his, his thinking. He's not knocking faith. He's defining what real faith looks like and what real faith does. And so the question is there, what good is it, my brothers, if someone claims their faith but has no deeds? Jesus put it this way in his most famous sermon in Matthew chapter 7, verse 16. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. It's like hot, not hard to work out, guys. Remember chapter 1, God, good, devil, bad. So you're following God, you believe in God, you can expect good stuff. And it's not just in the miracles that God gives that he references in these every good and perfect gift. It's everything that God does. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire, says Jesus. Thus by their fruit you will know them. You will recognize them. You can pick them out. And then Jesus says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Now notice that James 
uh, has says this, if someone claims to have faith in Jesus, and this is very sobering, because it's easy to say something. It's a lot more difficult. And many people might even go, Lord, Lord, <laughs> I prayed the sinner's prayer. Lord, Lord, I said this. Lord, Lord, I confessed that. <laughs> Not everyone who says this will enter the kingdom of heaven. Guys, this is serious stuff for us. The criteria is, but only those who do the will of my Father in heaven. There's a doing of the law. And in that same sermon, Jesus says, I am the fulfillment of the law. I am the completion, the telos of the law, as it were. Paul uses that word. I have not come to abolish this law. I have come to fulfill it. And then he, he cautions and he says, so unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's right near the beginning of the sermon. Now at the end, he comes again. There are going to be people who are going to say all the right stuff, but they are not getting into heaven. Only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, drive out demons, perform many, many miracles? I'll tell them plainly, I never knew. Not once, hey, we were tight, but you kind of drifted. He says, you haven't been living this. Only he who does the will of my Father. Now, now we know that there's this journey towards real faith. How do we hold these things together? James is going to show us how. First, he gives us two examples of what faith is not. And then he gives us two examples of what faith is. So exhibit A, sending away, sending the needy away naked and hungry. Notice that in this interaction that he describes, several spiritual gifts, these are clearly listed as gifts of the Holy Spirit and ministries of the Holy Spirit and ministries of the people of God are neglected. So there's this guy, and he's clearly hungry and malnourished, whatever. And he's desperately in need. And he gets told, basically, the Lord bless you, and someone says the benediction over him. And then he's expected just to carry on. Hospitality is missing. Mercy is missing. And in the definition of Scripture, even justice is missing. Now, if I was this hypothetical character, notice he doesn't pick on someone to dishonor them. He has an imaginary character, a hypothetical character. I mean, you, we can all know what going through the hypothetical character's mind. You know, the other person who's poor and cold and naked and hungry. Well, you know, if I give to one, I've got to give to them all. I don't want to create dependency. I'm not sure I'll have enough. James just doesn't go there at all because faith is revealed by actions and not by the head conversations that we have with ourselves. Exhibit B, these monotheistic demons who tremble and shudder. So the first is this claim to faith that just ignores and fails to, you know, human need and fails to love. The second is actually Demons who believe that there's one God, but that's it. 
<laughs> they're not good. They're really dark. They are bad. They know they are not God, but they are determined to live in rebellion against God. Now, this is not a whole talk on uh, the powers and principalities. But the bottom line is they have a dualistic faith that will never save them or anyone else. It's just head. There's no heart. There's faith, but no fruit. There's believing, but no behaving. They've got an orthodox theology in one sense. They know that they are not God. They wish they were. And then, and then James tells us this, that this kind of head knowledge faith, that all it is is just mental processes going on inside your brain, he says is useless or barren. Another way to translate it is it's, it's unproductive. Now, I want to take a moment because these words are going to help us unpack the passage. The Greek word is argos, which if you were in England, you were about, you'd go and order something online. Now, I don't know why they chose that name, because it literally means it doesn't work. So imagine opening a shop that says it doesn't work. But, uh, and, 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 and it comes from the, the word ergon, which means to work. But then in Greek, if you put an A in front of it, so you have a theist, that's someone who believes in God, and you have an atheist, and that's someone who doesn't believe in God. So they take the ergon, and then because of the way Greek works in that, you end up with argon, but then you don't say it like that, you say argos. And so this is something, this is faith that literally doesn't work. The idea is work. It just does nothing. It's useless it's idle. It's unproductive. So when Jesus tells the parable of the, of the man who hired workers throughout the day and he went to the marketplace at 9 o'clock and he went to the marketplace at 12 o'clock, and what did he find there? He found people who weren't working. They were argos. They were unproductive. And in a sense, and that's not in a human sense, when, when, yeah, there's barrenness. And so faith that doesn't learn action is barren, useless. It doesn't literally work. Remember, we're talking about faith that works. So now to exhibit C. Abraham's actions and faith that are working together. Now this gets really exciting for a, like a Greek guy like me. James remembers two major events in Abraham's life. Genesis 22, Abraham has to become willing to offer his son in obedience to God. And James remembers that as the moment when God says, now I know that you love me. And, and Abraham becomes known as the friend of God out of that encounter in which he absolutely held nothing back. Now, I mean, there's a mystery to that because, of course, God searches the heart, but there's something in the integrity and the pain of the journey that Abraham goes through that shifts things in the heavenly realms, not just in God's mind. God knew, but he allowed on earth something to play out that shifted things for all eternity in Abraham. And then the other thing is when God gave Abraham a promise of descendants, and this is seven chapters earlier, important this, 
Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now we know from Paul's writings, he picks up on that idea. But James adds the Genesis 22 account. And then he says this. So we know that Abraham, as it were, has been declared righteous by God. He believed God. It's credited to him as righteous. And we get a whole lot of Paul's teaching built on that. Now, this is not to contradict Paul's teaching. But now James says, but there comes an event in Abraham's life when he puts his faith into action in a way that is absolutely mind-blowing and, quite frankly, a little bit scary. And then verse 22 says, and his faith, talking of Abraham, and his actions were working together. Yeah, what Work. They were working together. The other word, ergon, reappears, but it's got a different prefix. No longer is it argos, as in, you know, A and then contradicting it or turning it negative. It is now synerge. Again, the Greek changes slightly. From which we get the word synergy. Still the idea of work, but now it's not that it doesn't work. It's now that it works together. And, and the idea inside of this is that synergy isn't just two things that, as it were, now go alongside each other. Synergy is when you add one and one or you multiply one and one and you get ten. It's an exponential idea. So Jesus has this idea of when we sow seed, for example, it can produce 30-fold or 60-fold or 100-fold. Why? Because there's energy. And when things come together, they don't just give you the sum, they give you an exponential outcome. And so when you have faith and action, you get an exponential synergy of power and work that is released in the moment and that's what, that's what James is trying to show us in Abraham's life. And then he says the, his faith and his actions synergized. They were working together. And Abraham's faith was made teleos. It was made complete by what he did, by his action. His faith finds its teleos, its fullness, its completion in his action. The two work together and the action completes the faith. When I look at this and I look at Abraham's example, I've got to ask myself the question, what is my faith costing me? What is my faith costing me? You know, Abraham had to be willing to literally lay down that which was utterly precious to him, seemingly like the fulfillment of God's call and promise on his life, and be willing to lay it all down and offer his own son. And as I think about this, I, I almost have to stop and go, what obedience am I dismissing? Because I think it involves unthinkable sacrifice. You know, I mean, offering Isaac is an unthinkable sacrifice. Yet 
he knew what obedience am I dismissing because it regards what I regard, I mean, it involves what I regard as unthinkable sacrifice. Exhibit D, Rahab's brave and dangerous hospitality. This comes from the Old Testament book of Joshua in chapter 2 and tells how Rahab hosted and hid two spies. It's very clear if you go back to Joshua chapter 2. It's not so much in, in, in this reading. We just see her action. But her action was determined by this, that she believed what she had heard about Israel's God. If you go back and you read Joshua chapter 2, Rahab believed what she had heard about Israel's God. I'll never forget in about 1988, 1989, I was on a mission team. And two of us white guys got to stay in the heart of Stanger, which was, and the area we stayed in was right. This is predominantly an Indian uh, community, but there was a Zulu community right next door. And it's a state of emergency in South Africa. And he has two white guys and I was a minibus driver. So I had just like a big T for target, you know, a round circle that, you know, you go wandering around the rural areas of KwaZulu-Natal with a minibus in the state of emergency. It's not a great place to be, but for courageous hospitality. And an Indian family took us into their home. And they fed me more curry than anybody should eat. But I survived that. But the thing that stood out for me is that this was not a wealthy home. Four families shared a four-bedroomed house. And yet when we went to stay, and we were just two single young guys, when we went to go and stay, the father and mother of the house, the patriarch and matriarch, moved out of their bedroom and gave us their hospitality and gave us the first place in the house. And they dismissed the risk to themselves the danger to their property with a combi and a high ace they're right there in their middle and the fact that everybody knew that two white guys were living inside there. Now, you think that's dangerous. Just go to Jericho in Rahab's time and realize how much courage it took her to let those guys into her place and then to hide them <laughs> and to deceive the, the people who wanted to take them away and to confess her faith in the Lord God of Israel. And they leave with more faith in them because of the experience they had with her courageous and uh, hospitality and dangerous hospitality. Her kindness could have got her executed, but her faith gave her courage. So Abraham is male. And James brings Rahab in contrast to his female. Abraham is Jew. Rahab is a foreigner. Abraham is honored. Rahab is disreputable. Abraham's the father of a nation. But Rahab acts like a mother to two strangers. So she's different to Abraham in every way except for this, her courageous faith. And scripture says of Abraham, for example, that he you know, hosted the Lord when the Lord was on his way to Sodom. And here we have the Lord's people being hosted by Hagar. 
And one of the things in this time as we exiting COVID, and there's the threat of more, is for us to realize again that in the story of Jesus and in the people of God are these courageous acts of hospitality that take us to people different to ourselves. And that was one of the things that was most remarkable about Jesus. And it does take faith. Real missional hospitality is a work that the church does. And we're going to have to start thinking about how we do that again. We've, we've, many of us have formed social bubbles, and we're going to have to reflect on how do we open up the unconditional hospitality of Jesus that is a powerful demonstration of the feast of the kingdom of God that is open to everyone. So in a sense, that's point one and point two. Remember point two is when faith lacks sacrificial love and hospitality, our faith lacks integrity. And then point three is a reduced gospel becomes a false gospel because of what we leave out. It's not what we're preaching, it's what we're missing. So theologian and Christian philosopher Dallas Willard has sharply criticized what he calls a gospel of sin management that has become barcode Christianity, to use his term. A barcode scans, scans the label, but it doesn't look at the substance of the product. So if you switch the barcode, you could walk out for the price of a chewing gum, maybe with an iPhone. Now, you'd have to have one seriously, uh, you know, shop attendant who's not paying attention. But the reality is God doesn't look at the labels anyone gives us. He doesn't look at the label of Jew or Gentile or male or female. God looks at the substance of our faith, not the label, not the barcode. A gospel that simply wants to confess sin and then carry on living in the same way, just saying the sinner's prayer is pretty much barcode Christianity, according to Dallas Willard, where we're just trying to switch the label instead of change the product. The reality is God is going to look at our lives to see if there's love. He's going to look at our lives to see if there's kindness and hospitality and sacrifice, mercy and justice as the evidence that our faith is real, according to James. And so the gospel begins with the staggering news that we've been made by God, for God, in the glory of his image, to know, reveal, and represent him on the earth. You see, God has sovereignly chosen to accomplish his will on earth through people who will walk with him. But because of our sin as humankind, from origin to the present moment, our world is broken, unjust, sick, lost, hurting, and outcast. And in the redemption revealed in Jesus Christ, who is a man who is utterly unique because his identity and essence is also God, he comes as God to reveal to us the heart of our Heavenly Father. And he comes as fully human, his life revealing how God's kingdom comes in everyday ways through people who are filled with the Holy Spirit. But he also comes uniquely without sin and becomes a perfect substitute to atone for our sin on the cross. And so by faith we share in the grace and power of this representative death and resurrection. And by the power of the Spirit, we too release the healing, freedom, righteousness, justice, welcome, hospitality, reconciliation, and hope of a new world. 
by reproducing this ministry of Jesus, bringing the kingdom, representing him. You see, reducing the gospel to what we say and pray, rather than what we do and live, is ultimately, according to James, no gospel at all. The Lord bless you. Thank you for joining us. Amen.